Good evening. I'm a little bit of a loss for words because it's so quiet. It's so nice to not be talking. I feel bad to disrupt the silence with this Dharma talk. I'm also realizing um, uh, that I'm actually currently in my life actually really struggling personally, internally with, with this talk actually, which is interesting. So I hope that I listen to the Dharma talk as much as you do. <laughs> and so the way that I think about this is I want to talk about the heart's release. The heart's release and really actually this faith to let go. Having faith in the act of letting go as being the right thing to do. Or the trustworthy thing to do. And it's really, at times, really difficult to be confident and to trust that letting go is actually what we're hoping to do. It's what's going to matter. So when I think about this, one of the things that I try to remember about Dharma practice and meditation practices is actually it's a practice of subtraction. It's not a practice of addition. It's about subtracting that which is unnecessary, subtracting the obstacles that are getting in the way. And I know that for many of us with our busy lives and listening to some of you in the interviews, um, so many of us are so busy that um, meditation practice or being retreats, being on retreat feels like something else that I have to add to my life, to the, to the sort of Jenga pile that's about to fall over. And if I just put one more thing on top of it, I'm going to collapse. I know sometimes I feel that way. But the, the flip of the switch, or the, really the switch in the view, is actually trying to realize that the whole practice of the Dharma is actually a practice where we start to learn to, to let go of things, to subtract things, and to remove obstacles that are getting in the way of our, of our freedom. And even in the mindfulness practices, in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, which is the teachings of the four foundations of mindfulness, that pretty much almost all of the mindfulness instructions that we hear, whether you hear them here or anywhere out and about, are, come from this uh, teaching. And there's a bunch of refrains, and there's a bunch of phrases that the Buddha keeps coming back to as he goes through the mindfulness instructions. And one of the ones that I like the most and one of the ones that's talked about the least is this refrain where there's this strong intention and this very strong encouragement to put aside your desire and discontent for the world. To put aside your worries, your regrets, your life, and all of the what am I going to do about this, and what am I going to do about that, and I should have done this, and I should have done that, and how about this, and how about that, and all of these 
mental habits that we get trapped in as we sit here. And actually, before we even sit, there's a strong encouragement that, that says, actually, put that aside. Let that go. And we're always coming back to this, to be free from this, a craving and aversion for the world. And so by the world, the Buddha is really talking about our material lives, our, the things that we got to have and the things that we got to get rid of and the things that we have and the things that we've got to get rid of, which I don't know what your mind is like, occupies a pretty good portion of my time. I gotta get this, and I gotta get rid of that, and I gotta put this over here and get this. And how do we even have faith or confidence that actually letting that go is important? Because sometimes the thoughts come in and they're so compelling, they're so convincing, we think that we just, oh, I just gotta figure this out right now. I'm sitting in this old firehouse up in the hills of Malibu, and I really gotta figure out this very irrelevant thing that seems to be arising in my mind. What am I going to be when I grow up? Struggle, existential struggle. And this is actually what I want to be when I grow up, and I'm still not done playing that game. I'm like, are you sure? There's a lot of other things to do. I don't know if this is it. So you've seen this, and you know, this is so much of what we're up against. And so how do we put that aside and unhook from that in a way that we feel some confidence in that? So if we're going to talk about faith, the first thing I want to do is just try to unpack and point to what a complicated concept that has become. And actually, on the, um, the way that faith is described in the Dharma as a psychological faculty, as a possibility in the mind, um, it's actually almost quite the opposite of how we think about it in our culture, and faith actually meaning belief. So we see the world's religion, and we see that the, we, when we think of faith, we think, what is it that I believe in? And whatever I believe in, I have faith in that dogma. And, and actually the way that faith is talked about in the Dharma is, is as a concept almost on the verge of extinction. <coughs> so I want to try to see if I can get us into this territory. And the first thing that I want to say about faith as a faculty, as a support faculty in the mind, which is what it is, it's a, it's a possibility. And it's actually not so important that we know what it is, but it's a lot more important that we know when it's present, when we know that it's there, the sense of faith or confidence or trust or even refuge, is that we know in our mindfulness that, oh, it's actually here, it's a possibility, it's something that's there for me. Maybe not all the time, but I want to develop it. So it's really an experience more so than uh, something that we ascribe, an external belief that we ascribe to. So it's written in one of these, um, me and Cheryl are both Dharma nerds, uh, which is why I like hanging out with Cheryl. 
Um, and this comes from an academic survey of, of faith from a Buddhist perspective that I think is quite good. So it's defined as faith, confidence, or trust. It is important to understand that this quality of faith is strongly related to wisdom and mindfulness. And it is considered in the Pali formulas as a support of the whole med meditative path. It is not a belief in a dogma, but indeed an ability to recognize the danger of being influenced by the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. These forces of getting caught up in this desire and discontent for the world. They gotta have this, and they gotta get rid of that. And the, the confusion and the delusion that says, if I actually could have this, and could get rid of that, that I would be happy, and I would be happy forever. The delusion that that would even work, and this is a force in the mind. Equally important is to develop the confidence and the opportunity to overcome them by developing or training the mind. So that brings us back to these skills that we're developing here. That training the mind is going to be the mechanism which is going to allow faith to arise. It's going to allow that confidence. It's a quality that arises in the mind when we've trained, when we're doing the proper training. It's something that becomes drawn out of experience. It's something that we can use to stay with the training that we're in. Therefore, the fact that faith appears at the beginning of the liberation process does not imply that it is a tool to be put aside after application. So it's not like we just have faith or confidence that this practice is going to work, and once we do that, we just put it aside and continue. It's a support faculty that we want to bring with us the whole way, all the way to the end. From appetizer to dessert. We want to be able to draw this faculty with us all the way through. So it's not like we use it and then put it aside. But it is a quality that is to be cultivated because it is intrinsically and inherently precious. And so it's, it's very strange when we start to think about and, and the Pali word is sada, which means it's translated as faith, confidence, trust. And I, I currently, and I've seen it in a few places, I really actually like to translate it as refuge itself. And so we don't need to know what it is so much as we need to, we want to be able to be mindful and aware and know when it's there. And we've all had that experience, right? of feeling confident or feeling a sense of trust or a sense of possibility, that there's a possibility for a better way. There's a possibility for seeing things in a different light. And as a mind state, as a mental state or even as an emotion, I think it's really grossly overlooked. Because when I reflect on my experience and when I really drop into what is it that I value most. When I'm in a state where I feel confident or I feel some trust or some faith, I cannot think of a mind state that is 
know what the word is that feels as good as that. I feel motivated. I feel secure. I feel like I can set boundary. I feel like I can stand up for myself. I feel worthy. And so a lot of times in our culture, we think of confident people as sort of being arrogant. But I think when we can try to feel into it as a meditative state, a state of mind, or even an emotional quality, we might start to notice that it's really something that we really like, something that really we want to foster that experience. And so we might be able to say that we could take refuge in that at times. And to um, not be so concerned with what we have faith in. So again, it's this first refuge of taking refuge or confidence in our own Buddha nature that I can, I can do this this possibility. And I used to get real sort of bristly when people would talk about faith in a Dharma talk. I'd say, Buddhism doesn't have any faith. That's why I like it. And I start to think about the ways in which, um, for me, I think about oftentimes about the ways in which faith has sort of failed me. And for me, most of my early life, uh, faith and trust seemed very dangerous, actually. One of the examples that I think of, because Christmas just happened, one of the examples that actually is almost a little embarrassing to say, but isn't really true, is one of the biggest uh, betrayals of faith and trust in people was when I realized there was no such thing as Santa Claus. <laughs> Like, I was fucking devastated. <laughs> I mean, I was like, my, my grandfather was totally into it too, and we had like the best Christmases. And when I realized that it was all a hoax, I was, I was just like, oh my God. And then I just was gotten this total state of, well, what else isn't true? I'm like, well, that means Easter Bunny and Tooth Fairy, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and, I, and I felt this. Uh, and then when I was, when I was 11 years old, my, my sister was killed in a car accident, my older sister, which was not that much longer after than the Santa Claus incident. And I just had this, and I'm starting to realize now through some of the work that I've done with my trauma therapist that, you know, I have this deep, ancient, old sort of existential betrayal wound, almost like the universe. Uh, that there's actually nothing out there that is worthy or putting your faith or trust in anything at all is just completely dangerous. And so for most of my teen years, I just lived in this sort of constant state of bewildered, bewildered, doubtful, fearful, not trusting experience which is very destabilizing. And so I, I, I was absent of this for, for so long. And there were actually two incidents that happened that actually started to incline my mind towards that. One of them was the Dharma. But even before that, I remember 
after my sister was killed in this car accident, my parents, of course, were completely devastated and had no skills or resources on how to manage that loss. So I had no schools, skills or resources on how to manage that loss. And one of the things that happened was actually, and this happens a lot when people lose uh, a child, is her room, her bedroom, uh, was like left untouched for like almost three years, which I'm told is actually very unhealthy <laughs> to do. But one of the things that I used to do when I was uh, 12, 13, 14, is my sister was really into rock music. And so her room had like Motley Crue posters and she had one of those uh, Stairway to Heaven posters that had the sort of velvet, it had the sort of uh, carpety. Uh, and her room was still totally a mess and there was like, you know, cans of Aquanet. And I actually remember the room quite vividly. And I used to sneak in there because I wasn't supposed to go in there. And I would go in there and I would sit in her room and I would get her a boom box and the headphones. And I would, I would, under her bed she had a box of tapes and I would sit in her room for hours and hours and listen to Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Motley Crue and Aerosmith. And it was the most, um, I used to say that, and I think about it, I used to really take refuge in that experience. Until my parents would find me in there and they'd get very upset that I was doing that. And I couldn't understand why it was problematic. But there was something about music and there was something about going inward. There was something about being in that. And it was also a little bit... Um, it was scary and it felt kind of a little bit wrong, but it was my sister's room and it was still the same. So there was like, I was trying to uh, like almost pretend like, you know, that, that she was still there or something. And so I really, and that, you know, my whole life music has been a big thing that's been so important to me that I put the headphones on and I still love headphones. I love big 70s earmuffs, which are coming back, if you've noticed. The bigger, the better. I want to just like put a headphone helmet on. <laughs> and so that was one of the places that I found, that was one of the few places that I go back in my memories, I really felt safe and I felt confident. And it was, it was a refuge in that. And as the theme of loss continues, when I was uh, 19 years old, I was in a very... Um, pretty nasty car accident and my, me and my girlfriend were walking and we actually got run down by a drunk driver and she was killed uh, during the accident. And um, so that again was just that the existential betrayal wound of the world is unsafe and there's nothing to trust just became completely part of my worldview. And it wasn't soon after that actually that I was very fortunate that I had a friend whose parents uh, used to sit at IMS and his parents actually were friends with Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and uh, I used to actually go to Joseph Goldstein's house for Thanksgiving as a teenager and smoke pot in his driveway <laughs> and go in there and I was like these people are so friendly and so nice and they don't seem to care that we're high <laughs> and I knew there was something going on there I was like there's something cool about this whole place and so I was after that accident, I went to IMS and, and learned uh, mindfulness, and I learned about the Dharma, and I learned about the First Noble Truth, and I met my, my first Dharma teacher. And I remember sitting with this Dharma teacher, his name was Stephen Smith, who now lives in Thailand, and he met with me in the morning and explained to me. Uh, he basically said, tell me, you know, he knew what had happened. And he, I, think, I don't remember what we said, but I know that we were there for maybe a couple of hours. 
And I remember him talking to me about Dharma practice and about the first noble truth and about the reality of suffering and actually how much wisdom there is in being able to see it and to understand it. And he completely flipped my experience around to being like, you've actually really seen how things really are and that you can actually cultivate a whole practice around this. And I remember in that moment thinking to myself, this is the first time I can remember uh, I felt like there was an adult present who was actually telling me the truth about life. And I was immediately drawn towards that because this faculty of faith, of confidence, there was something that just arose out of that conversation where I was like, yes, somebody is telling me the truth finally. And then I learned you know, these practices that I so much take for granted. I remember, I'll never forget this, and I oftentimes will joke that I'm still chasing the first meditation <laughs> experience I ever had, because it was the first one was really the best one. <laughs> and I just remember sitting in the hall at IMS across from him and saying, you know, when you notice your mind wander, when you're uh, breathing and, you know, you see you get caught up in your thoughts, to just, you know, come back. And I remember doing that you know, five or six or 50 times and starting to really feel a tremendous amount of relief and realizing that my mind was, there was so much suffering in my mind and that I'd been living in this suffering in my mind since, you know, ever since I found out there was no Santa. Like 10 years of that, my whole teen years. And I just remember, and I recalling this experience so much because over the last 20 years since I've fallen in and out of the practice I always end up coming back to that original seed and remembering yes that's right there's a possibility here there's a better way to do things things are not exactly as they seem life isn't what you thought it was going to be it's different than that it's what we think it should be then there's how it is and when I think of renunciation, I think of, I want to continue to let go of the notion that I think I know how it actually should be. I want to give that up. I want to renunciate that. I want to abandon that. I want to let that go. There's nothing there. That's where the suffering is. And I don't know what your mind is like, but I can always, without very much effort, almost automatically imagine that things could be so much better if only. <laughs> I'm disappointed, actually, as I sit here, how much of that still happens for me. But this is really the challenge that we find ourselves in. And so... When we start to practice and we start to come on retreat and to do these things, please don't minimize and don't squander that the giving up and the letting go that you're doing here. And if you think about even today, how many times did you get hooked into something and you let it go? How much suffering did you end today? Because you know, that's what we're doing in that experience. We're actually ending suffering. And if somebody asks you what you did on your retreat, you can say, I was ending suffering. <laughs> what were you doing on New Year's? 
That's what I do. That's my thing. Because I just end suffering. That'll throw people off a little bit. (laughs) And so even just the questions that we, that, you know, the possibility of this uh, faith, this sada, you know, and the questions that we asked last night, you know, something brought you to the practice. There was some possibility. You learned about meditation, you read about meditation, you heard a talk, you, something happened and you had this, Faculty, you had this support faculty of the mind arise and say, oh, this, this seems like a good thing. This might be a good way to go about it. And then talking about why has it been important to you. And you're speaking right directly from that place. To speak and to share on why meditation is important to you, you almost have to arrive into that support faculty to even report from that place. And then we bring the hope forward of, I hope I continue doing this thing that I know is the right thing. And so what's the subtracting part here now is this renunciation, which again, for me, terminology-wise, I mean, I never say the word renunciation unless I'm talking about renunciation from a dharmic place, right? It's kind of not an everyday word. So we might say letting go, or we might say abandoning, but even abandoning in our culture has such a negative connotation to it. So I want to read a few things about what renunciation is. And the Pali word is nekama. And it means, it literally means to actually give up. It means to surrender. But it means to give up or to surrender that which is unwholesome or that which is unnecessary. And so the way that I like to think about it is renunciation is not needing anything extra. Not needing anything extra in this moment. Not being demanding. To experience the benefits of being able to give up that which is extra. So to to actually, to give it up and to renunciate it, to let it go and to actually stay with it long enough to see that that there was a benefit in that. And to give up what is not necessary in this very moment, in this very life. And as we start to practice, we start to see that the mind is sort of chucking up a lot of unnecessary, not needed things. Right? And when I think about this, actually, uh, precept about not, about, you know, that's not taking what's freely offered. And there's the other side of that, which is actually being generous and receiving what is being offered in this moment. Right? Because it always be a little bit warmer in here. It could always be a little bit, the cushion could be a little bit softer. The chairs could be a little bit more comfortable. The morning instructions could have been a little bit more clearer. The 
tofu could have had a little bit more barbecue sauce. (laughs) (laughs) In how much of our experience is, it's almost like a slap back delay. We have an experience and it's like, yeah, but trying to improve one of the definitions of samsara that I like or this round and round of suffering is just that urge to fix or to improve just a little bit. A little bit, just it just be. And we suffer in that, don't we? We get fixated, we get pulled into that. And it can be, get weird as you become a meditator because you become more aware of subtlety. I currently don't have, um, what is it called, uh, controlled air in my house in Hollywood, but when I lived in Nashville, I had central air. And I will like adjust the temperature one degree and be like, it's totally much better. (laughs) You know, like 71 is better than 70, actually. Like I can really notice the difference. I can't, obviously. But we get so much of that, so how can we subtract? How can we see what's happening in our experience and say, not now, not necessary, not important, no big deal. Let that go. Let that go. Where am I going to move to next year? What's my job? Let that go. And the, the irony of it is this, there's this sort of positive feedback loop that gets created in these experiences where the more that we let go and the more that we practice this renunciation, what that does is that now there's space for this faith experience to arrive. So sometimes the faith and renunciation in, in, the, in the Pali languages, they're, they're, they're called a dyad. There's a, a sada nikama dyad and they're taught as being two sides of the same coin. That as I let go, I feel confident in my ability to let go, which means the next time I need to let go, I'll have more confidence in my ability to let go, and I'll be able to let go. And as I let go, I'll have more confidence in my ability to let go. And as we just kind of start training the mind in this way, it starts to happen more automatically, actually. And what seemed impossible at one point to break free from, right here, when the mind is just on you, it starts to kind of be more like this. It's like, no, not that. Not that. That can go. Forget about that. We start to see, as we subtract these things, we start to feel this refuge, this faith, this confidence of like, oh, this is, this is the way to go. And then my preoccupation, my desire and discontent for the world of trying to have and to get and control, that that whole system, that whole process starts to break down by itself. And so I want to read this as part of it as well. The Pali formula defines renunciation as going against the stream. It is defined as an external renunciation for sensory clinging. 
So there's an external renunciation where we're letting go of the worldliness, the thing that we got to have and get. And an internal renunciation for abandoning craving, the former being a symbol for the latter. The stream is essentially an image of craving rather than the object of craving. So it's not so much as we're giving up the object that we want, but we're giving up the mechanism in place that even moves us towards the object. And there's that inner renunciation. And you've done it probably, I would argue that all of you have probably done it a couple hundred times today. The inner renunciation is the conversion from the powerful grip of craving to the release of letting go or abandoning of it. Liberation is essentially the end of attachment, the end of participating in this process. In other words, the most important aspect of renunciation is renunciation itself, the very act of letting go. So as we feel ourselves being pulled out to those external objects, and we start to kind of break free from those, we start to see that there's a whole internal mechanism in place that's being deteriorated as we start to give that up, or we start to abandon that, and we subtract ourselves from that. So it's actually a double win. It's a complete win-win situation because as we are unable to unhook from the craving and the aversion for the world and the thing to have and to become and to get rid of, we're experiencing the freedom of needing that. And at the same time, we're deteriorating and we're undermining the process internally that's even putting that whole system in place. So the external letting go creates this internal renunciation. And one of the ways that's also talked about in this quality of samadhi, of collectedness of mind that we've been talking about, is actually that there's a tremendous amount of joy in that. There's, all, there's happiness in that. There's really a deep sense of collectedness, not needing anything extra. It's okay. Right now, this is, it's, this is enough. Uh, this, this will do. And so in the Abhidharma, the Buddhist teachings on, on Buddhist psychology, they outline 26 beautiful mental factors, and the first one is faith. And that, as this factor is developed, what arises out of it are 25 more beautiful mental states. And, and ironically, it goes faith, and the next one is mindfulness. And it goes through a whole series of stages that we develop. So again, it's not something that we just kind of use at the beginning and let go of. It supports us all the way down the line. In another place that I want to 
another system that I think is a great way to look at the practice is how we go from this faith to wisdom. The Buddha often defines wisdom as the capacity to seeing and knowing things as they are without being influenced by greed, hatred, and delusion, as this is the utmost cause of liberation. Here, faith is described as an intuitive understanding of how clinging to sense experience leads to suffering and the letting go of that craving leads to liberation. And there's a story in the canon, in the earliest teachings of the Buddha, uh, that's taught as the five spiritual faculties, which are other support factors that I'm going to talk about. And the story, and it's actually one of the few places where faith, again, is the first one in the list. And as you probably start to notice, if you read Dharma books or you go to talks, you sometimes can start to think that we worship lists in <laughs> Buddhism. No. And, you know, part of learning involves information, but this list of the, the five support faculties are sometimes called the five indriya, but they're support faculties. They're things that are there for us that we draw out and that we develop. And so the story is that the Buddha, the fully enlightened Buddha, after he wakes up and has his dark night of the soul and his battle with Mara and a lot of the mythical stories that we hear, uh, that he is uh, sort of walking around the area after he achieved his awakening and he's reflecting on his own experience and he's thinking to himself, how did this happen? It's like, what were the, what was the stages that I went through that allowed for me to have this experience? And he comes up with these, these five possibilities that he had and he says, I, I, is that I had faith and confidence that I could. That my whole journey, the Buddha's journey, began with the sense where he thought there was something about life that could be understood. And there was something about life that could put an end to the suffering that we find ourselves in. And he thought that he might be able to pull that off. That there was a possibility for that. And then the next factor that he talks about is I had the faith and I had the confidence that I could and then I put in the effort. I tried things. I went out and he went out and saw all the different spiritual traditions of his time. He learned concentration meditations and different spiritual practices and tried some very strange aesthetic practices, really kind of gnarly forms of renunciation, denying the body food things of that nature. And he really, really sought out to try to find this process, which is often called soteriology. Most religions have a soteriology, which is the study of salvation. And so he went out to try to achieve his own salvation. And in his case, with, he was mostly interested, in, actually totally interested in how to end suffering. And so being totally frustrated and confused and not satisfied at all with any of the instructions that he was given, he realized that he had developed this ability to be mindful. He developed mindfulness was the third thing. And that he was able to see that he actually could sit quietly beneath a tree and that he could look within 
and that he could actually watch his own mind and begin to observe the mind doing what the mind does and saw that the suffering that he was trying to break free from was actually being created in his own inner experience. And then, of course, he developed this whole system of the Dharma, which is just an elaborate, where he's basically broken the mind down in different systems and experiences. And out of that mindfulness came the, what we talked about this morning, what I talked about this morning, and we've been developing today, is this concentration. But not just raw concentration, but wise concentration, being able to put the attention on the things that are worthy of attention. And within the mindfulness practice, being able to see, let that one go. Don't let that one go too. Don't need to do that. And with able to Sometimes the word is yanasomanasakara, which means wise attention, which is the wisdom faculty, which is the 26th mental factor in the Abhidharma, that all these, all these faith from mindfulness and as the list goes down, all arrive in this experience of, of knowing what is wise to attend to. And then out of that experience of Yanasomanasakaro, wise attention, right concentration, being able to focus on the wholesome qualities of life, being able to abandon the unwholesome qualities, being able to generate kindness, generosity, and wisdom, and letting go of this greed, hatred, and delusion, abandoning and renouncing this <coughs> wanting, gotta have, gotta get. and arriving in this experience of wisdom, of seeing things clearly, knowing what needs to be done. And all of this points us into this understanding of, you know, usually what's called the Four Noble Truths. And without getting into a whole talk on that, it's really this ability that we're starting to, to develop here about turning towards our experience and being honest about the difficulties in our life. Being clear and seeing what actually can go. And having faith and confidence that what can go actually can go and what arises out of that. So as we become more honest about these difficulties and as we sit with them and we work with them, we start to become more and more aware of the causes. We start to become more and more aware, and, and I heard it, uh, and I'm sorry if I was laughing during some of the interviews. It wasn't because I was laughing at you. I was laughing with you because I know exactly that experience. Uh, this is happening and this is happening and lots of, I heard the word should a lot today. Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Should this be happening? Should this not be happening? Right? 
Is it okay if I... All of these. And so a lot of that is riddled in this experience of doubt, the opposite of faith. And so, we, we, and so when you're practicing and you're struggling and you're... It, this is actually really quite good because you're becoming more and more aware of these causes. And if you don't know what to let go of, how are you going to let go of it? If you can't see it, there's no way you're going to be able to have the faith to let it go. So this is the second noble truth. We're constantly coming into contact with the craving and the wanting and the should be and the shouldn't be. And we're just, you know, as we're training the mind here, we're just, sometimes it can feel like a chore. It's like, how many times do I have to abandon craving? How many times do I have to break free from this? As many times as it takes. And you've seen this today, haven't you? How many times have you seen this? If you're seeing this and this is making sense, that's exactly why we're here. And then we start to experience these indrias, the faith faculty arises out of the third noble truth. And we start to become optimistic. We start to become optimistic in the overcoming of these things. And the whole things just start to roll out. Because when I feel optimistic about the removal of them, this support faculty of faith arises. And when I feel confident in faith, I start to feel energized. And I start to feel like the effort is coming out. I start to feel like, okay, not only can I do this, I'm totally going to do this. I'm going to end suffering right now. And when then the effort is there, the mindfulness comes. And the mindfulness gives us all the strategy that we need because we can see what's happening. We can make the right choice. We have the tools that we need. When the mindfulness is there, the wise attention is there. The, con- the, the knowing what to attend to and what to let go of is there because we're clear. And when we're clear and we know what to cultivate and what to let go of and what to be with and what to not to be with, the wisdom is there. The knowing. And if the wisdom is there, the faith is there, these five faculties, sometimes uh, I don't want to get too far out on the skinny branches, but... Uh, the Buddha says these five faculties merge into the deathless and merge into an experience that is not going to end, not going to disappoint, not going to let down. It's, It's just there for us. And the joy of that and the contentment of being able to experience that, even for just for just one moment.
And so the last thing I'll say, which I heard for many years that has been helpful, is that all of these things that we're talking about, everything I'm talking about tonight, all of these teachings are, that the Buddha says over and over again, the Dharma is good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. So it doesn't matter if this is your first retreat, it doesn't matter if this is your tenth retreat, It's good because if you're able to hear this, it means that you have a little bit of dust in your eyes. And that means you're feeling into and your mind is inclining towards this possibility. And then these faculties, they just, we just don't ever end. It doesn't stop. You don't ever put them down. And mindfulness is in the middle because it balances these things. It balances the faith and the wisdom. So we're not totally in faith without the wisdom and we're not in wisdom. They balance. Mindfulness balances these things. It balances the concentration and the effort. And they don't go back. They're just possibilities that we become more and more and more and more familiar with. They stay with us, they go forward. We bring them with us along the way. And so they're gonna be good in the middle of your practice. 10 years in, 20 years in, they're, they're gonna be good then, and they're gonna be good in the end. So I offer this for your reflection. So let's just sit for a few minutes.